Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast. Welcome to a new episode. I'm your host, Dr. Muna Abdi. And in this episode, I am joined by Dr. Javaria Shah, who self-identifies as a Sufi Londoner of the post-colonial variety. Dr. Shah is a scholar activist, academic at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, and is also the founder of the Social Performance Network Project, which is a desocializing activism project. Please do check her out on social media, which I've posted along with the podcast link. In this conversation, we are talking about language and in particular, the use of the word BME or BAME within a UK context. For those who are listening in from outside of the UK, the abbreviations BME stands for Black and Minority Ethnic and BAME stands for Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic. And it's a terminology that has been used across the board in the UK for over 10 years now to refer to those who are racialized as being non-white British. Dr. Shah and I discussed the importance of language, the need to interrogate language and how language is used within anti-racism work. Okay, so we're talking about BAME or BME, and for those that are not that don't know what that term is or what that abbreviation is, it's Black and Minority Ethnic or Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic. So BME or BAME. What is that term? So if we have a look at some of the, like, the origins of that term, we know that it originated from the idea of political blackness in the 70s, where everybody was using that term to tackle systemic discrimination and then it shifted somewhere in the 90s correct me if I'm wrong where I feel as though there were conversations that were happening particularly within academia where people were talking about how the term political blackness was um, problematic and disadvantaging certain communities because everybody was coming under the banner of black and there's one particular person that just always comes to my mind um, Tariq Mahmood yes. Professor Tariq Mahmood and his paper where he was saying he feels as though the term political blackness and black in particular as a single banner um, actively disadvantages the South Asian community because it prioritizes or it makes predominant the experiences of the African Caribbean and the African community. And so there was this, there was this sort of argument going on in my mind where I was thinking, okay, now we're thinking about BAME as being a banner that actively disadvantages members of the black and African community because of the fact that it is so blasé and so vague, but there was a time where political blackness was challenged for very similar reasons for a different community. What do you think the origins of BAME are? What are they? I think just going back quickly to what you're saying around political blackness, I think that is a really interesting topic to touch upon it. Um, mm. Just because you've obviously, you've mentioned Professor Madud and his, his reservations. But I think there were also reservations, if, uh, if I remember, because this through lived experience of having, having worked within activism during the sort of the period of the 90s, uh, predominantly when these things were being challenged. Um, I think there was also a similar feeling amongst the black community that, mm -hmm. you know, um, there is a real history and um, positioning that comes with uh, taking ownership um, of, 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 the, of the term black mm. and to have that convoluted with other melanated communities 
yeah. creates creates a, a barrier and a problem. And I, I remember quite clearly, and mostly with the, at the time, it was like Pan-African communities, particularly that were really opposed to the concept of political blackness. Mm. But I think political black, blackness was an interesting period in a, in a British context, particularly in terms of labeling, because I think what it was, if I, again, I'm situating lived experience here, um, if I remember correctly, it was trying to acknowledge some of the uh, unified experiences of contemporized racism that specifically the South Asian communities and the, um, the, the sort of West Indian communities were experiencing. Yeah. Um, so it was a it was a kind of a strength in unity kind of concept that underpinned it originally. Yeah. The idea was strength in numbers. I think what makes the difference between the current BAME terminology and the political blackness terminology is that I think that the political black had some sort of um, shaping and buying in from the communities that were affiliating with that term. Whereas yeah. I think BAME is something that feels very kind of forced upon those same communities. Um, I think the ethnic minority section of BAME as well, the, 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 uh, the ME can mm. be quite problematic as well because it's speaking to a different experience which may not come from experience of melanations. Um, and I think it kind of just quite crassly consolidates the experiences of say, I don't know, um, contemporized Brexit politics mm. and the, the white diaspora that comes from, from sort of Europe. Uh, yeah. alongside you've you've got Asian it's Asian's a very broad term yeah. uh, it could mean East Asian it could mean South Asian um, and so what does that really mean because each each community within that broader Asian umbrella a bit like uh, the African diaspora will have a yeah. different positioning and I, I agree I think the B in BAME is problematic on many levels because it's not geographically identifying as as say the A is yeah. and then the ME is also quite crassly just grouping together um, a community. So I think yeah. that to me is probably the crucial difference between political black and BAME. I feel BAME is something which is very data driven, it's very mm. legislatively driven, it's very HR driven if you're working in an institutional context. Yeah. Um, it's where political black was very much around activism. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I feel like there's some, there's some the political blackness aspect of it is driven from a grassroots level and was formulated mm. at a grassroots level to a certain degree, whereas BAME is strictly political. It's, it's for a strategic way of positioning people that are not privileged within society. And we're, we're going to be using that term privileged a lot throughout the, the, the podcast episodes because it's something really important to highlight. And I love the fact that you mentioned the fact that in the term BAME, the B in BAME, is hugely problematic. And I think Tariq Mahmood in, in, in his work talks about how he's an advocate for the term minority ethnic because he doesn't feel as though black and Asian should be distinguished as being separate from the minority ethnic category. And his argument is if we just have minority ethnic, then we have anybody that's racialized as non-white under the same banner. So again, he's trying to homogenize um, the space, which is hugely problematic, but he is also highlighting the ways in which the term BAME is positioning those that identify as Black and those that identify as Asian as not being minority ethnic communities as well. And I, I, I think there's a lot we can go into into, into those particular categories, but it, his argument is one that is really helpful to consider as well. 
I think he's just a really he's a really interesting academic and I mean I mean it's 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 interesting to sort of look at his work through this lens because I'm a huge fan of his work but I do think that when it comes to examining and exploring categorizations just because of the nature of my, of my own work which is mm. about desocializing I always find it difficult to align myself with with any of these categories for example minority just as a term itself is problematic mm. um because it's again positioning um whiteness as the norm and everything Absolutely. else outside of that is a minority and then I think ethnic as well a lot of people don't realize but the term actually means heathen mm -hmm. not Christian not Jewish yeah. um so it's a very you know historic term which I feel we don't ever delve into the real meanings of that word ethnic yeah. but I think that that in itself is is problematic to, to use as a way to classify people also there's no there's no real clarity in terms of whether we use minority ethnic or whether we use other terms there's no real acknowledgement around the racialized dynamic and the problems around those issues so wow. I think part of the, the process I guess is reaching a stage where a community or an individual feels represented Mm. Um, in terms of their, their voice and their experience. And it's not something that's being imposed upon them. I, I'm a huge fan of global majority, which Professor Gus John in, in, has encouraged people mm. to use terms like that because quite rightfully so, if we are to look at the, ourselves in a global context, mm. we do make up a global majority. Uh, so we're not a minority by any stretch of the imagination in that, in that regard. And I, th I feel it's more empowering language than minoritizing ourselves yeah I feel like language always has to be purposeful and I don't I'm not clear on what the purpose of fame is like exactly as you said the the racial element of it the racialization isn't clear it isn't clear whether it's talking about anybody who fits under the category of being not non-white it's not clear on whether or not this is about distinguishing people with citizenship or that live within the borders of the UK or it's not context specific there's no the purpose of BAME isn't clear. And I think you can see that with the abbreviations that are used. You have minority ethnic, that in itself is a really problematic terminology to be using. You have black, which is a term that is specifically around those who are racialized, but doesn't give you an, a, any indication of a person's ethnic identity. And then you have the category of Asian, which is the broad spectrum of an entire continent that is captured under one letter. But there's, I feel like there are hidden messages behind each of the terms that are used within that abbreviation, but I just don't think they're spoken about. So I think there are real political reasons why the term black is being used and not the term African or African Caribbean. I think there are real political reasons why the term Asian is being used as being distinctly different to black. And I think the term ethnic minority is, in, in my personal experience, it has been used as a way of bringing in communities that are not always racialized into racialized discussions as a way of removing them from the privilege of whiteness. And particularly with the politics around Brexit, we see this with the um, Eastern European community, the, the, particularly the Roma Slovak community, where conversations around their experiences are often brought under the banner of these communities are also BAME because they're minority ethnic, but it doesn't reflect 
the lived experiences of those individuals. They're just put under the banner of it. And it, it's really, really problematic. It is, absolutely. And I think it becomes even more problematic when you have these very kind of isolated pots of funding that become available for initiatives. And then mm. you've got people that are racialized as white, but they identify as minority ethnic, speaking for the experiences of people that are racialized mm. um, as, as, as not white. Yeah. <laughs> so what you then have is this really strange kind of institutional racism uh, which kind of percolates down to the very activism uh, that is supposed to be challenging those 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 barriers. Yeah. I, I think we're all nuanced. We're all fascinating people, communities, individuals, and I think homogenizing ourselves crassly and allowing ourselves to be labeled that way and adopting those labels to mm -hmm. describe ourselves, I think, can be really problematic to the, the challengings that we want to do especially yeah. anti-racist work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you said by design, BAME was constructed to be something that is data-driven, but it, it always skews the data in a particular way. And I think that that may be purposeful, but I think one of the things that we noticed within that is it's really hard to do anti-racism work in challenging things like systemic racism within education, for example, and having data as a starting point when that data falls under the category of, looking at the um, educational experiences of students that are racial, that are categorized as BAME, because that data puts any young person that isn't identified as being white British under the same category. And we know that those, when, when you pull that data apart and you look at the educational experiences of African students alongside Chinese students, alongside Indian students, the, the, their educational experiences and their educational challenges are not the same. But it feels as though it makes our, our work as anti-racist so much more difficult because we can't access the appropriate data. And I, I think BAME, what it does is it just puts everybody under the same banner to say that this is the level of disadvantage that we have. And the issue can't be associated, associated with a single demographic or a single community because this is a BAME issue. And if it's a BAME issue, then to, in order to address that, we need to have a comparative between everybody who's racialized as not white uh, alongside anybody who's white British. And I, that, it doesn't make any sense to me at all why we would have a data set that would be presented in that way. No, I agree with you completely. I mean, it was, I'm reminded actually of a lecture I attended way back when I was doing my PGCE in the early 2000s. And we had an academic called Roxy Harris um, mm who talked about this to us. So he very, very succinctly just summarized the fact that, you know, a, a, an outcome, an educational outcome for someone who's Afro-Caribbean will be different for say someone who is from a, a particular region in, in West Africa or someone who's from Trinidad and Tobago versus mm -hmm. someone who's say um, Pakistani, Bangladeshi or Indian, like mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the rates of achievement, the rates of educational engagement, for example, are, if you're looking in an Asian context, are very problematic for Bangladeshi boys, for example. And he talked about how that nuance just isn't captured in, in the data that's then produced. So what you have is, well, black boys, okay, but then what are the origins of those black boys? Um, similarly, comparatively, Asian boys, okay, but what are the 
again, what are the what are the, what are the ethnic backgrounds of those Asian boys? And then also you're looking at other nuanced aspects such as the areas they live in, um, what's made available to them. Uh, you look at like the class intersects and, and how that may have an impact on a person's academic achievement. And, and that that nuance just isn't captured. And I think this, this lecture that I attended was before BAME, uh, the BAME terminology sort of entered our lexicon. So this yeah. is a good, a good, I'd say seven, eight years before and, and even then this was an issue of concern. And so with the crass BAME, especially the ME section to BAME, I think is massively, massively problematic. Also, you, you noticed earlier on, you noted this BME BAME. So they're used interchangeably, but there can be such a difference there, can't they? Between whether the A is left in or the A is left out. Yeah. And, and so I think there are huge issues around the data that we want to cap capture nationally, the conversations we want to have, the research that we want to develop, what exactly are the messages that we're giving? And at points, it does frankly feel like the process of data capture itself and how that's reported back and the areas of issue themselves are a product of the very racism that's being challenged. And I think that's really ironic. <laughs> absolutely absolutely and I think by design it's it's lazy it's lazy methodology and it's if you if you're using a lazy methodology the outputs of that data collection is always going to be flawed uh, it creates a huge problem for us as anti-racists that are trying to look at the the true impact and the effects of uh, systemic discrimination it's hard for us to be able to capture that and evidence that if we're not able to collect the data the way it needs to be collected and what it also presents is a really strong political argument for both sides of the political agenda because the data is so ambiguous that it can be shifted in either direction so you can either have individuals that will say um, we're not focusing on um, interventions for this particular demographic because the data shows us this and individuals are saying the reason why we're justifying interventions is because the data shows us, and it could be the exact same data that yeah. is just skewed because it's just so ambiguous. But then when we have a look at the, the language around BME and we have a look at the language around BAME, it feels as though there are two conversations that are happening. One that is around how we talk about this in relation to the system. Like how do we have conversations about experiences of, the, of communities within the system, but also our personal identities. It hasn't, there isn't a single person I know that identifies themselves on a day-to-day -day basis as BAME or as BME. It has no relevance yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis, but it is something that is imposed upon us when we enter into spaces. So how many BAME people do we have in the room? How many BME um, leaders do we have, et cetera? And we don't have those conversations at the dinner table. We don't have those conversations with our communities, with our friends, et cetera. So what are the conversations that we have around identity? What other language do we use? So from your experience, when you're talking to people about their identities, often when people are not using the term BAME, but they're talking about experiences of perhaps being racialized in a space, how do they self-identify? I think we're reaching a stage now where people are becoming a lot more conscious about this, especially if they're grouped in that BAME category. Um, I know I've definitely had a bit of a journey, especially during this pandemic, where I've been kind of forced to think a lot more carefully and, and really process my, myself and my, my own positionality. 
I mean, one thing I personally am very opposed to is this idea of trying to convolute the black struggle with the Asian struggle or any other struggle, because I feel that we have to respect the experiences um, that communities have had historically and are currently having. There may be intersections of experiencing mutual racism, but that doesn't qualify a homogenizing. So my personal view on this is, um, and I'm just coming at it as, as a melanated woman, is I like to use the word melanated rather than of color or, or anything else, because I feel that that's fact. I have, I'm melanin rich, so, I would rather, if I have to be identified as what I am not, I am not white, then I rather have the control over how I am identified and that would be melanated woman. Essentially, identity I think is a very personal thing. It's, it's, it can shape our interactions, it can shape our views of self. So it's so important to have ownership of that. So mm-hmm. I would go as far as saying that, you know, there are many, there are many women and men that I know who are Muslim and want to actually just identify as Muslim. They want to be known as part of the Ummah, which is like the family. They don't really want to be identified by the different overt physical variables that they do Mm. or don't have. Um, So I, in that sentiment, I would say that just as we can identify our pronouns, we should be able to identify how we wish to be approached and, and, and um, how people identify us because we're, we're going through some really tough times, I think, as communities, and it's important to have a right and a control over how people see us and speak to us and reference us. I think there's something very disempowering about having a label stuck onto you, which you don't agree with, you don't identify with. And then, again, this goes back to my work around desocialization. I feel that it's, you know, forcing a socialization process, which can really make you feel detached from yourself. Yeah. Um, so I would go. I would. I would go as far as saying that just as we can identify our pronouns at the end of an email signature or whatever, we should be able to identify how we want to be referenced racially. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I think again, I'll, I'll go back to saying that for me, language is purposeful, and I feel as though we carry so many different identities with us that we end up shifting between them in different spaces so even though I know I'm I'm racialized as a black woman there are certain spaces I enter into where my identity as a Muslim comes first and foremost or I identify myself as a black Muslim because that in itself is a really significant category that we don't talk about um, enough Um, or I would identify myself as an African woman uh, purely because there are narratives that are around the black experience that do not reflect my lived experience in, in certain spaces and so I would rather identify myself as being African in that space than being um, black. There are lots of decisions that we enter into when we're, when we're going into spaces around our identities. And it, it can sometimes be confusing for people that are doing anti-racism work alongside us or our allies to be clear on the language that they should be using when they're working with us or when they're doing this work alongside us. So I think for me, when we're having these conversations around identity and around language, it's helpful for us to think about the purpose of the language that we're using and whether or not we are thinking about language to speak to the system, in which case, as anti-racists, we probably should have a conversation about what is the most appropriate language to consider in talking about systemic discrimination. Should we talk about racialization as being specifically around the black experience and the white experience? And then what do we do about 
individuals that are not racialized as as black? Do we have do we use the term melanated? Do we use the term people of color? Do we use the term um, racially minoritized? What sort of language we use? Because I think that conversation is really helpful, not just for us in engaging in this work, but for the allies that we have who are advocating and pushing forward some of these conversations with us as well. No, absolutely. And while going back to my earlier point, I am incredibly conscious about my own positionality and my own work in the context of the, the black and white binary. Um, I, I would also say that it's important to acknowledge the nuances and that it's not as simple as a black and white binary. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have the mixed race experience, you have mixed heritage, you have um, as you quite aptly put, um, melanated communities who are not black, but also have an experience of a struggle, a post-colonial context in many regards. Um, and I, and I, so I feel, I don't feel like it should be positioned as an either or, which I feel that sometimes it is, in, if I'm mm. honest, in the mainstream narrative. The, the, the concept here is that, you know, um, you, you have this binary, the black and white binary, and then anything else is either trying to take away from the black community or it's trying to um, appease the white community. And I don't think it's that simple. I, yeah. I think it's actually a lot more complex than that. Obviously you will have that model minority format, which a lot of people fall into. And that's, mm -hmm. that's I think black and brown alike. It's not something that's exclusively um, a brown problem, mm -hmm. um, but I do, Think that again the nuances amongst let's if we were to use the term brown the nuances amongst those brown communities again is just completely missed so a really interesting um example would be that if you look at it in a subcontinental context you look at it in a south asian context there's this huge colonial history of british rule for i believe nearly 200 years and it started through capitalism by the east india company and you had, as a result of the Brits leaving, you ended up with the whole partition kind of praxis and you ended up with, you know, what was initially India and then East Pakistan, Pakistan. Pakistan and East, and East Pakistan uh, went to war and then you ended up with East Pakistan becoming Bangladesh. There's a lot of history there, some really distressing, traumatic, uncomfortable histories there between those peoples of Bangladesh, of Pakistan, of India. There's a lot of unresolved baggage, which hasn't fully been able to become addressed in those original countries. Yet here we find ourselves quite often mixing with each other uh, in a British context, ironically, in the very country that was part of that narrative. Mm. So what you're often finding then is this really strange relationship of trying to have this unilateral identity as South Asian, but really deep, deep down, when you really pull it all apart, there is there is so much difference mm. and it's so much unresolved trauma that that can often make its way in. And then similarly, if you look at the immigrational context, you know, the Pakistani diaspora of the 60s is very different to say the Ugandan Indian diaspora of the 70s, yeah. which is very different to the Bangladeshi uh, diaspora of the 70s. Like, so it's, 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 it's understanding those nuances within those different categories and realizing that that as well will have a difference uh, that will kind of manifest and an experience that will be sort of informed by 
historical, uncomfortable colonial history. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it, and I feel like it's it's the same discussion that we're having when we think about the concept of black within the British context and that alongside African and what we mean and not recognizing that those are very two distinct identities and there are very few people that are um, either identify as being African that also identify as being black. And there are reasons for that. The, the, the black British um, experience has predominantly pushed forward the African Caribbean culture, whether that's through music, whether that's through food, whether that's through clothing, so on and so forth. There's very little around African culture that is that has made its way into this idea of black Britishness. And so it's very rare for somebody that identifies as African to also identify as being black British. But we do have a growing community within the, uh, the African Caribbean community that are now starting to identify as being of African descent. And I think that started a really interesting conversation between the African Caribbean community and the, um, the African communities that are migrants into the, into the UK that were not here for generations upon generations, like the Windrush generation, but came like my parents in the early 90s who want to make sure that there are distinct differences in terms of categorization between themselves as being African and those that are from the African Caribbean community. And I think those internal conversations make it even more complex when we have these conversations about then how do we speak back to the system about the challenges that we're facing because of racialization. But then when we look again, drawing into the educational experience, the experiences of African students within schools are very different to the experiences of African Caribbean students in schools, particularly boys. And we don't have enough information about what exactly those differences are because we're not allowed to look at the data um, in order to understand the nuances and the complexities of what they're experiencing. But we do know through lived experiences that there are there's systemic racism that has been encountered by the African Caribbean community that hasn't been encountered by the African community living in, in Britain. And so we know that there are generations upon generations where African Caribbean boys have been discriminated within the education system. And we know that this hasn't directly affected to the same extent um, African boys. But we can't have those conversations again because they're, they're falling under the same category as black. Yeah, no, and I can completely relate. I mean, it's, 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 it's similar in terms of, you know, the, the Pakistani diaspora, the Pakistani experience of the 60s, where the whole, the, the term he came off the back of those communities coming here is, is very different to someone who would have, say, come from quite a privileged uh, Ugandan background, mm. um, you know, um, and, and being able to, say, for example, afford to buy house cash, mm. you know, when they arrive versus... Yeah. Um, uh, people that were coming from very kind of countryside, villagey regions in Pakistan, mostly settling up north or mm. settling elsewhere, and 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 sort of hand to mouth and saving to get to a certain point, and and mm. and was struggling with English, was struggling with the cultural um, kind of adaptabilities, and I think this is where there is definitely a gap in the British curriculum in terms of our contemporized history of race activism i think yeah. that is something that should definitely be incorporated so we can understand that there are certain communities who may look the same mm -hmm. but they aren't necessarily the, their experiences are not the same um, and those are determined by when they arrived 
what what happened when they came here, yeah. how they try to fit in or not fit in, and, and and so on. I mean, one of the one of the things which is often which often comes up is this a little, a little storied example here. So, way back, I had a little stint where I was living in Essex, and I was living in a region which was predominantly BNP, so the British National Party. So I'd get these leaflets come through the door. Um, obviously they didn't know that it was reaching me, someone like me of my demographic. It was, it was aimed at somebody else, but <laughs> I used to look at these leaflets and the leaflets would, I had this, I still have this one leaflet, which literally said the Indians are okay. It's, it's, it's the Pakistanis that are the problem. And the, the Indians will assimilate, but the Pakistanis won't. And mm. the Muslims particularly are like the problem because they're Muslim as well. So it was intersecting Islamophobia with racism. And it was, yeah. it was, creating a division within the South Asian diaspora to say, well, this community's okay, but this one isn't. And so we don't have a beef with these guys, so to speak, but we, we've got real issue with these law and these are the laws we don't want anywhere near us. And I think that was so, it was upsetting, obviously receiving that leaflet through my door, which is my safe space, but then to, to yeah. sort of engage with it in, in the context of the work I do, it was really an interesting insight into the workings of, of those kinds of right-wing politics. Absolutely, and, and they're, they're designed to be divisive. They're, they're designed to do that. And I, I often find when I'm doing my work around anti-racism training as well is I always have to bring in the intersectional experiences of being a black woman, but also being a black Muslim woman and making it clear to people that there are experiences that are encountered by the black Muslim community that are not encountered by the black community. And that intersection of race and religion is one that we don't talk about in anti-racism work anywhere near enough. And if you, when I think about my own identity as being a Somali woman, Somali is in East Africa. So even though I identify as being African, we talked about how Asia is a, is a, is a, is a massive continent. Africa is too, and it's not homogenous. And we, there are internal conversations we have about what it means to be African and what it means to be black and colorism and whether or not there's the Arabs that are living in Africa are identifiable as being black and African or just identifiable as being Arab and African. And those sort of um, interesting dynamics that are taking place. But as somebody who is East African, who is Somali, I often have the dilemma of falling at the intersection of the Muslim community who are having conversations strictly about Islamophobia, but are not addressing the racialized issues we have within our own communities, particularly the anti-blackness that we have within our own communities. And then on the other side of it, conversations with members of the, the racialized black community who are often at the African Caribbean community, the West African community, majority Christian usually, who either do not talk about the intersections of faith and um, race or if they do they only talk about Christianity and mm -hmm. they, they do not reflect the lived realities of many people across the continent who are not just African not just black but also happen to be Muslim and the idea that Islam Islam as a religion is is it's itself been racialized as being a Middle Eastern a Middle Eastern religion and therefore if you are Muslim you are always aligned to that culture and therefore there is an element of blackness that you somehow lose. And I've had people that have said to me, um, yes, you're racialized as black, but you're not black, black. And my response is always, what, what is black, black? And then they'll, they'll say things like your hair, 
Mm. They'll mention hair texture. They'll mention food. They'll mention um, the way that you speak, the features of your face. And you find often it's individuals who themselves are racialized as black that are propagating the same stereotypes that are used towards them as a way, as a marker of identities. If these are the things that are categorized as being black, if you don't have any of these characteristics, you can't fall under this category as well. And it's often happening internalized within the community itself. And so when you have a complex lived experience that isn't captured in any space, what do you do? And I think this is one of the things in anti-racism work. It's almost, it's like a Pandora's box. You open it up and no one really knows what to do because you say to them, right, name has no relevance. It has no purpose as a, as a term. People of color can sometimes be problematic. Melanated can sometimes be problematic. Black, political blackness is not something that everybody identifies with. So what language do you use? And as soon as people realize the complexity of identity, it can cause some people to just, it just, it paralyzes them. It can cause people to just not engage with it at all. And the excuse that I, not excuse, the, the, the response that I often have in the training sessions that I do is, I'm reading this material, I'm engaging with this work, I'm, I'm finding out about white privilege, etc. But I don't know the right language to use to identify people that are affected by racist systems. It's a valid concern because I think if those of us who are mal- melanated are not sure ourselves, how do we expect everybody else that's engaged in this anti-racism work with us to, to be able to find their way through, navigate their way through that as well. My thinking on that really is that whilst we're using white as the norm mm. and anti-racist work keeps focusing on whiteness and what that means, how what someone comes to terms with it, how they start disowning it mm. and all of those things, we're never really going to reach a point where there can be true equity. And I think part of that would involve you quite aptly captured this concept of the prejudices and the issues that we ourselves have within our own communities against mm. each other. Mm. So um, that needs to be worked on. I, I've had people racialized as black say to me, well, you know, there's a huge terrorism issue with brown Muslim boys. And it's like, okay, again, that's a massive stereotype. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, brown Muslim boys aren't the only type of Muslim out there really. Um, And so I think until we start unpacking our own prejudices and our own issues and questioning how much of that is also um, through a colonial lens, Mm. you know, because a lot of a lot of the colonial tactics were divide and rule and they were creating these divisions and these 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 pseudo hierarchies between different melanated communities, you know, the fact that you had um, a huge influx of people from the subcontinent brought over to Africa, East Africa in particular, and to, to act as, uh, and South Africa to act as, as middle management, mm. you know, it's not helpful now as we enter this kind of collaborative effort on, on anti-racism. I think what I would say is, for me anyway, the aspiration is that we reach a point where white isn't the normative, whiteness and our dissection of that and our understandings of that as people racialized as white or not white isn't the main focus. And we mm. actually, acknowledge that that focus itself is part of the problem um, of racism and and we actually move away from that and we we start having conversations which I think are a bit more macro so around 
the hegemon hegemonies that exist and, and why do they exist in that way and how we might be able to dismantle those to, to mm. ensure that everybody has a position in our society in an equal sense rather than being defined by what they are not rather than what they are. But I think we've got mm. a long way to go, if I'm honest. I think with a, you mentioned allies before. I think we've got a lot of really amazing potential allies out there with a lot of well-meaningness to the work. But I think that also intersects with the huge issues that we have around white liberalism. Mm. And I think that that in itself can be quite unhelpful to trying to create a new conversation and a new context. Yeah. And, and I found just from what we're talking about that that's what we actually really need, a new context and a new conversation because it, we, we keep having, it feels generation after generation, a similar conversation with it without any fruition coming from that. Yeah, absolutely. And it feels like when, uh, thinking about what you said about the, the white liberal movement and how that has engaged in some of the anti-racism work we're doing. It's really interesting to, to think about how a lot of the language that we have that is problematic came from white liberalism and how a lot of the work that we are seeing in terms of the microaggressions that are not being addressed in, in workplaces come from this notion of white liberalism and equality and everybody's the same and therefore we don't see colour um, so on and so forth. And we're not really addressing the root problem. And it requires us to have some uncomfortable conversations about what liberalism actually is what and, and what damaging it effects it has had as part of colonialism, the legacy of colonialism as, as part of the history of systemic racism that has developed in the UK. And the role of liberalism within that is something that we don't discuss enough. I absolutely agree. And I think that that form of li liberalism is something that many within our communities are also infected with mm. so we'll often have this um you'll have people being very vocal about the experiences of a community because they feel that they can speak to that because they may be of of color and and they and they fall under that BAME category but I might sound a bit controversial now but I don't really want a non-Muslim talking for me as a Muslim mm. uh to talk about my experience of the, the complexities of of holding that identity in a country which sometimes does feel very Islamophobic. Yeah. I, I feel that what white liberalism sometimes does is it, it has this, it almost gives itself this license to over-intellectualize what is a really traumatic experience. And I think mm. whilst I do believe that we should support what we say from an evidential, I think a lived experience is a very strong evidential. Yeah. And, and so I always take issue with that kind of very relaxed, you know, we're all in this together yeah, to a yeah. degree we might be but it doesn't give anybody a license to speak for I think it's a speaking for and that goes back full circle to the whole yeah. BAME labeling I that's that's where my real issue is with this work I think yeah I, com I completely agree with you and I think one of the things that's been highlighted since the Black Lives Matter movement is that there are a lot of people that are keen to discuss racism as a BAME issue and not talk about anti-blackness yes but like and, and we, we don't often talk about when organizations are saying they're increasing BAME representation, they're not increasing the representation of those that are racialized as black. It is specifically using that BAME label to engage with certain communities and to, to justify it as being under the BAME banner without having to engage with other communities. And one of the things that, and I'm gonna do the complete opposite of what Tariq Mahmood said and say that as political blackness he proposed was disadvantaging the South Asian community, the BAME terminology 
actively works against those who are racialized as black because it means we don't have to address the issue of anti-blackness if an organization addresses the issue of BAME representation. And that often means it's either individuals who are, are mixed race, who in terms of colorism are closer to whiteness than those who are highly melanated, um, or it's members of the South Asian community who are, and again, it's particular members of the South Asian community who are afforded particular privileges and accesses into spaces, being able to, to go in into those spaces. And it's, it's used as a very, very strategic tool. And I often equate it to the way in which um, work around equality and diversity within organizations favors white women because it's really easy to engage with gender than it is to engage with any of the other forms of protected characteristics. And I think BAME is, has explicitly gone in that same direction where you're engaging with issues around ra racialization, but to the degree in which your organization feels most comfortable. I 100% agree with you um, in terms, especially what you said in terms of BAME disadvantaging the black community or, or bringing to light issues of stratification and, and addressing those. I mean, I think that's, for me, that's the crux of the matter. The crux of the matter is if you're involved in this work in any shape or form, it could be anti-racist activism, it could be scholarly activism, it could be EDI work, it could be anything along those lines, or you wanna pass commentary on these issues in a public space. I think if you are not racialized as black, you have to be very respectful that you are not, you can, you just cannot speak for that community. Um, you just don't have the right, just as all of us in these nuances would be very mindful of, of who we're speaking for to what end. And I think I really did see this come to light around the BLM period during the pandemic, because I was being approached by a lot of people to come in and do talks. And I re was rejecting them because my first question would be, well, how many black people do you have on the panel? Mm -hmm. And if they had none, or they had one, and that person was, you know, I'm not gonna name any names, but you know, you have got this performativity of whiteness amongst our communities and people will perform whiteness in the way that they just try to make everything sound a little bit less, you know, combative or confrontational. Mm -hmm. I'm using quotation marks with my fingers here because mm -hmm. you can't see me. And so I took real, I, I just took real issue with that. So I was refusing to speak on these sorts of panels because I felt like it wasn't my, my topic to speak to. I have a lot of solidarity for the black community Particularly, I mean, BLM, I mean, if you've been an activist for as many years as some of my friends and colleagues and comrades have as I have, you recognize that this is an ongoing issue. You know, in my time, it was Rodney King. It's knowing when to speak, when to step back and when to acknowledge that you're actually, there's a chance that you're being dragged into some sort of divide and rule rhetoric. Yeah. And, and so I think it's very much down on the individuals that are involved in this work to have some really careful conversations with themselves and think right how much of this is me being transactional about race, racism yeah. and racist pain and how much of this is me about me wanting to do some real meaningful work mm -hmm. and um, the meaningful work might mean that you are rejecting some really good financial offers or you're rejecting some really good opportunities but it shouldn't be about that and I know I'm going to sound really yeah. idealistic but I really don't think it should be about that. It should be about trying to create a better society.
Absolutely. And I feel like we have a, a real momentum at the moment and a real opportunity to demonstrate solidarity across the board. So I think a lot of the times when we're focusing on anti-racism work, we focus on white allyship as an important element of that, but we don't really pay as much attention to the importance of solidarity between melanated communities. And I think we're seeing a, a, a rise, in, and I think this is a really positive thing, in a, a, those that are part of the melanated community is either racialized as being black or racialized as being um, Asian, engaging in this work, but taking care in how they engage in this work. And I think the language that we use when we're doing this work reflects outwardly into what we're encouraging other people to use. So what I've been saying to people that have been engaging in anti-racism work is use a language that reflects your own intersections and that, that can speak back to the system from your perspective. Don't speak for another community. You can be an extremely powerful anti-racist um, educator being in, in any organization and sp speak about anti-racism specifically from a particular perspective, knowing that there are others doing anti-racism work that are also speaking from another particular perspective. And I think the, the more nuances that we're able to display in our own work, the more we're able to reflect outwardly how complex anti-racism is because the experiences of being racialized are just as complex. Well, absolutely. But I think also just as a as an add-on to that, you know, it, it, it's also about developing that awareness and that acknowledgement if you're involved in this work that you don't have to downplay the experiences of one community to try and prove the pain mm. of another. Yeah. And and I and I say that quite cautiously. I'm not talking about black or brown here. I'm just talking in general. Um, I think sometimes there's so much emphasis on a, a competitive comparison, and I think again that is to me a colonial legacy of divide and rule. Yeah. You know, racism in a contemporized context, in a British context particularly, has been difficult for decades, and it affects everybody in different ways. Yeah looking at it purely in that context and not contextualizing it in like historical pain, mm. we could argue that we all, like you said, have an angle that we can come at from our own lived experience and speak to the same issue. Mm. But I think it's important for us as community technology that if we are doing that, it's not saying that I want to, you know, kind of give more emphasis to my community's pain over yeah. this community. That's not what that's doing. That, that should really just be saying, right, this is, one angle and then somebody else comes in and goes this is another angle and then you you create a prism viewpoint exactly of how racism affects everybody yeah absolutely and I think it's presenting the lived reality of what we're experiencing through our work I think a lot of the times what we try and do and again this is looking at things through the lens of uh, whiteness and the, the, seeing this as decolonizing the processes that we're going through is we're trying to make things present things as messy as they need to be rather yeah. than trying to clean things up, categorize them, put them into boxes, because that's what's always been done in order to position us in a way that where we are continuously being disempowered in spaces, where in reality, if we recognize the complexity of what we, we live with, if we recognize how messy it is, we can see the beauty in that mess and how we shift between spaces. And it opens up a completely different conversation, as you said, we need to change the conversation. We need to be talking differently about some of the issues we're doing. And that means making sure that we're not presenting ourselves as the other two whiteness, sure. but actually saying, what are all of the things that we hold within ourselves and how can we 
try and bring as much of ourselves into the spaces that we're occupying rather than having to feel as though we're reducing a certain aspect of our identity in order to belong or be in a particular space. Exactly that. And going back to your earlier point around how you have this broad fame category mm. and then you might have affiliated funding or, you know, opportunities that may arise and mm. how that will hone in on like the, the model minority or it'll hone in on a particular another type of ethnicity, but it won't acknowledge the black yeah. experience or try and incorporate the, the, the black communities. I think that's a really crucial example of how that competitiveness is fostered. Yeah. And so I think it's up to us to, to say, no, I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to apply. If I'm not racialized as black, and this is for a BAME initiative that's come off the back of BLM, you yeah. know, clues in the name BLM, then exactly. I'm not going to apply. And then so, and then also if we're in a positions where we might be generating these funding opportunities, or we might be in quite high positions organizationally, I think good change can come from within. So actually thinking, well, actually, you know, what, what I've not liked to date, what I'd like the change to look like, maybe this little tiny opportunity I've got now could shape that. So exactly. I might put a bit of funding out and it's not for BAME, it's actually specifically saying, right, let's look at the Afro-Caribbean experience in a British context, or let's look at specifically, at, let's look at the West African or the East African or the North African. Yeah. And, I, and actually acknowledging that you're in a position where you might be able to change the script a little bit. Yeah, um, absolutely. And for anybody who has influence and is working within an organization and is in a leadership position within an organization, being able to really think about the language that you're using and recognizing that language is always purposeful and it has to reflect the communities that you're working with and the clients and the stakeholders that you have and working with those individuals to create a shared language that fits with their lived experiences, but is also purpose for what you're trying to deliver as an organization. I feel like I, it's laziness to go to BAME as a default when people have constantly been saying, this isn't a term that reflects our lived experiences that doesn't apply to us. So I think one of the things that people can start to do in engaging with anti-racism work within their organizations is to really think about the language that they use and how they're formulating this language and who they're formulating this language with in order to move forward so just to, to draw our conversation to a close because we could go talking for ages <laughs> it's been amazing yeah, what takeaways would you give for people that are listening in about the importance of language but also about the importance of um, enabling those with lived experiences to self-identify and to create that language that, that is being used to do this work I think we're in a really interesting period because for the first time we seem to be having a national conversation on racism, which I, in my lifetime, haven't ever seen happen really mm. on this scale. I think after the Stephen Lawrence incident, there was there were conversations emerging, but the outcomes of those police officers proved that they were still, it, it felt a bit like the conversation was quite superficial and there was a lot of, a lot of that drive came from his, his family, his mother, you know. Mm. I think now the period that we're in perhaps is because we're in the middle of a pandemic and people are yeah. they're more at home, they're thinking more, they're, they're unpacking these things more. I would use this opportunity to be a lot more vocal about how you wish to identify. It might be that if they are in an organizational context, they still need to capture their data in that way. But if there is a way of getting organizational buy-in or if there's a way of getting buy-in from other sort of institutions where there's a a dual narrative so there's a narrative mm -hmm. of respecting how people want to be addressed 
and then putting in the effort to try and make that behind the scenes fit into whatever the CRAS data mm -hmm. framework practice is, I think would be a good way forward. So I, I would say take hope from the fact that we are having this conversation nationally and take hope in the fact that, you know, there is, there is definitely a want at quite high levels to want to hear what people people from these communities want to say yeah. um, and, and use that to, to self-identify. I'd also say be respectful of the, the Black community's struggles and experiences and context and not use this convoluted fame as an opportunity to, to, to get into spaces which you might not normally have access to just because you are of colour or, or you yeah. identify as a minority ethnic person. Uh, respecting the fact that, you know, this is an ongoing struggle of centuries. So the least you can do as an ally, and you don't have to be a white ally, you can be a brown ally, mm -hmm. is to actually say, right, okay, I'm going to take a step back, or I'm going to give the platform over, or I don't need to speak to this issue right now, but I'm here and can be called upon in whichever shape or form I'm needed. I know we're going to a close, but I really quickly wanted to ask you, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Muna, I'm just fascinated about how you straddle the... Uh, the African and the Arab identity that you were talking about before, mm. because obviously the Arab communities have their own kind of really complex political narratives yeah. and Islam Islamophobia does seem to, in, on a global scale, impact those communities just in terms of stereotyping. Yeah. And then obviously you've got, you know, the African diaspora and that's a whole other narrative. So how do you how do you straddle those two identities? It's it's, it's really difficult purely because the Arab identity is often associated with the being in the Middle East or being in a country that identifies as being part of the, the Arab League or identifies as being um, an Arab country by nationality, even with, if it's within the African continent. Mm -hmm. And Somalia isn't a country that identifies as being an Arab country. It is based mm -hmm. within Africa. The majority of people that live within that country are highly melanated. Um, and so they do not feature wise are often associated with being Arab, but culturally, we have had a huge amount of influences, partly through to, with colonialism, partly through with um, the history of Islam within the country. And so there are a lot of my identity aspects as being an African that I cannot separate from what may be considered as being Arabian or Arabic cultural markers, because they're so embedded in what it means to actually be Somali. And that's because Islam as a, as a religion has been a part of Somalia for over a thousand years. Yeah. So it's not something that's over a hundred years, 200 years, it's a thousand years. And so yeah. the clothing that we wear is highly influenced. The, the spices that we include in our food, the language, the majority of people from North Somalia where I'm from speak Arabic because of the religion. Um, the, the names that we have are, are, are mostly Arabic. And so it's really hard to, to explain to people that there is a certain aspect of my identity that's African, there's a certain aspect of my identity that's Arab. And I think that is what we're talking about in terms of the complexity of it. When you're talking about identity within the African context, there are individuals who may be Indian and living in Uganda, who I share more similarities with than somebody who's racialized as black living in Kenya. Yeah. Because that individual may have more cultural markers that are similar to what I'm familiar with because of the context of where I was uh, that I was where I was born and and the cultures that I the cultural markers that I was raised with and so it, it the idea of identifying as African is purely because of the continent where I was born mm. my identity that I feel most strongly represents me is Somali 
So when people say to me, how do you identify? I never identify as black on a personal level. And I never identify as African on a personal level, unless I know that the person I'm speaking to doesn't know where Somalia is. In which case, (laughs) I'll just say I'm Somali and Somalia is in East Africa. And I'll make Mm. it clear to them where it is. Because I have had individuals that have said to me, where are you from? And I've said Somalia and they were like, oh, where in the Caribbean is that? Um, And my immediate response is, okay, I'm going to identify myself as African so that you can understand that I'm from that continent. Um, And then I explain that I'm from within that I'm I'm Somali. But if somebody asks me about my culture, it's evident for anybody who's familiar with the East African context and particularly with the Somali context, that there are more cultural markers that align with uh, the Middle East and in particular Yemen. Um, because we're so close together in terms of location as well than say Nigeria Mm. but if we're looking at it through the the lens of race if there is somebody next to me in a a meeting that is Nigerian and somebody that's next to me in a meeting that's Yemeni I know that I'm going to be seen as black and not seen as uh, as Arab within that particular context and wearing a, a hijab and being visible, visibly Muslim puts me in a category completely on my own, where it, it often confuses people because they, they're not quite sure whether or not my identity as a Muslim is overpowering or my, my racial identity or if it's the other way around. So I'm always in this complex space of trying to define my identity and it shifts, it shifts all the time. Gosh, that's fascinating. So your, your self-identification at the bottom of your signature would probably change every few months, baby. Who knows? It, it would probably change with whoever I'm emailing. And <laughs> yeah. just be like, we need, I need to have a conversation with you before I, I tell you what my identity is. But I think um, I always say to people, like, the, the Black identity for me is what I use to speak back to the system. Because mm-hmm. I know when I'm walking down the street, somebody isn't going to say to me, oh, you're Somali or oh, you're, or, oh, you're this or oh, you're that. I know the first thing that they're going to see is that I have highly melanated skin um, and therefore they see me as black. And all of their uh, assumptions around blackness will be tunneled and, and funneled toward, towards me. And I know that that is going to be the first thing that I encounter, even more than my religious identity, even though I'm, I'm a hijabi, I feel more insecure and I feel more unsafe in the UK with my black identity than I do with my Muslim identity and with the rise in Islamophobia that's that's an interesting thing to say definitely but I think genuinely I've had more to I feel more concerned when I'm walking down the street as a black woman than Mm. I do as a Muslim woman and 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 that's just from from personal experience I have the encounters that I have had have always been racist encounters Mm. they've very rarely been islamophobic encounters Mm. and and again it's hard to separate the two sometimes Mm. but more often than not I feel as though my Muslim identity is something that is deeply personal and it's something that I I have almost as as a protected protective armor but my racialized identity isn't something that I can disguise and so when I walk into a room or when I walk down the street that is an aspect of my identity that is immediately means that I have a target mark on me and we talk a lot when we talk about anti-blackness and we talk about doing anti-racism work as black trainers, the challenge of doing that work when you're somebody that is highly melanated and, and what that means for you in terms of safety. Absolutely. Gosh, that's really fascinating. And I'm so, but it makes me really sad as well at the same time, because 
the fact that you feel that way also mm-hmm. represents the different complexities of and and the, and the missing nuance in the in the way these socializations are occurring you know yeah. across across the breadth of our society but yeah. i completely relate to what you're saying about adopting an identity which is very broad very crass to a degree but it's just allowing you to politically speak too so exactly. i don't you know i've got complex heritage but I would say yep South Asian just for an easy life just so yeah. if I need to speak to a, a political issue so that yeah. makes a lot of sense that, that and I think make- it, I think particularly around doing anti-racism work it's about meeting people where they are yeah and you can't always have these complex conversations around identity in rooms where people just don't have the language to understand it and they don't have the knowledge of imperialism of colonialism they don't have the history of systemic racism they don't know they don't have the racial literacy to be able to engage in these complex conversations. And so at that starting point, you have to have a language that may be superficial, that may be too broad to capture the complexity of it, but it allows people an access point yeah. into the conversation. And, and sometimes that just may mean black. Yeah. Let's talk about what it means to be black. And for and I'm saying that from a personal perspective, because I know mm. that there will be people listening in that will say that talking about blackness isn't just an access point. It has to be engage with throughout but on Mm. a personal level I think for me I use black as an access point Mm. and then when I feel as though individuals are developing the racial literacy to understand the complexity of identity then we have a conversation about what are the different ways in which blackness can be understood and Mm. how what do we understand by performative blackness what do we mean by colorism within within this black identity what do we mean by ethnicity what does it mean to be African particularly when conversations then swerve into what about pan-Africanism mm. and that's a whole other that's, that's a whole other podcast <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole other podcast and so I, I I always say to people like just meet people where they are just mm. because you've read a lot of the truth just because you have the lived experiences don't assume that the people that you're engaging with are at that point to be able to go on that journey with you they're not and so you just yeah. have to just meet them where they are and when they're when they're working their way through and developing that racial literacy, the conversation has become more and more nuanced. But I do think BAME is nonsensical. And I think there's like a general consensus now that there isn't really a reason for yeah. why we still have it. So yeah. hopefully if anything does come out of this this work around Black Lives Matters and the real the the resurgence of anti-racism work that's happening at the moment is that we have a real deep reflection on language and we start to realize that the language that we, we have at the moment around BAME and BME are just not fit for purpose to do this work. Oh gosh, I hope that would just be a dream come true. It, <laughs> I, I, I remember it being introduced in 2010, roughly. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think 10, 11 years of that term is more than enough, really. I think it's time for it to go. Yeah, completely agree. <laughs> Javeria, thank you so much for joining me and for having this conversation like, you know we could have talked for hours and hours and hours oh. but I really really do appreciate it just before we go can you, you tell everybody what you're up to tell us about your social media handles so people can follow your work well firstly thank you as well Moon I really enjoyed this I, I love I love our chats as you know um, so my Twitter handle is JS underscore diaspora D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A I am quite Twitter active um, I am also founder of the Social Performance Network so which is an activist project to try and de-socialize so it's big remit wish me luck 
um, <laughs> welcome collaborations, welcome people's involvement, um, artists, activists, academics, if not a purely intellectualized project. And you can follow the Social Performance Network uh, on Twitter at Social Performer 2, all one word. Uh, we also have a website which is socialperformance.academy. So please do um, follow the work and fingers crossed we can get to a, a more nuanced conversation sooner rather than later. Language is a pillar of systemic racism. And in order to engage in meaningful anti-racism work, we have to be willing to interrogate the language that we use and the language that is used around us. Clarity is a tool of anti-racism. We have to ensure that we are clear and purposeful in the language that we use. One of the key takeaways from this discussion with Dr. Shah was that we should really think about the complexity of our lived experiences and make sure that that is reflected in how we access and engage with language. Rather than limiting ourselves to the compartmentalized labels that have been imposed upon us, we can start to talk differently, communicate differently, use language in more flexible, messy ways in order to reflect the lived reality of our experiences. We are not just black and white, the binaries of black and white do not do justice to what we are challenging as anti-racists. We have to think differently about language. We have to be willing to interrogate the language that we use. And we have to be willing to talk to each other and find out what those complex lived experiences are. Remember, this is a journey. Language will evolve and change over time as it has changed over time. But what we are doing as part of this work in becoming an anti-racist is engaging in a process of change. Change isn't immediate. It will not happen overnight. But we now develop the instruments in order to move forward in the right direction. You've been listening to Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast. <laughs>